everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Orleans DA Jason Williams here with us. Welcome to our show. Glad to be with you. So uh, how are things going in New Orleans these days? Have you guys recovered from uh, the hurricane? Well, you know, the, the, the good thing about the city of New Orleans is there's never enough time to be bored or fully recover from anything, whether it is uh, the first wave of a global pandemic on the heels of Mardi Gras or the second wave or then a hurricane. So. We're used to things being a little bit unsettled, but we're navigating it. We're moving forward. So um, talk to us a little bit about what your first, uh, what has it been, 10 months um, has been like as a prosecutor, um, what you guys have been able to accomplish. Uh, first and foremost, I think the landscape uh, of New Orleans in some degree is similar uh, to a lot of other places when you talk about dealing with the effects of COVID-19. Uh, I came into office on January 11th, um, and we've been able to move through some cases, uh, work out some plea agreements, uh, because we're not uh, using the habitual offender law the same way my predecessor did. Uh, but we have not been able to try any cases uh, since, uh, since COVID-19. And the legal system really runs uh, by bringing people together uh, um, in, in, in a tribunal, whether it's uh, defendant, uh, witness, victims, survivors, judges, jury of six, jury of 12, Social distancing really does not work uh, with this model. So there's one component, that jury trial component, uh, that we have not been able to really uh, press forward on. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we have been uh, working really hard at, at, at recrafting and redesigning a legal system that serves all people with, with the foremost goal of uh, reinstilling or instilling for some trust into the legal system. Uh, and, and by doing, in order to do that, we've, we've been working to correct an, uh, the sins of the past, reckon with uh, some of the harm uh, that was caused by, by a number of past administrations, 
we realize we didn't cause that harm, but it certainly is our job uh, to confront it and deal with the years of injustice uh, that preceded this administration. So uh, we, we, we created the first civil rights division uh, and, and it's fully resourced uh, and it's fully staffed. Uh, we launched the undoing of Jim Crow uh, civil rights initiative, which was the beginning of repairing uh, close to 120 years of injustice caused by racist, uh, repressive practice of convicting men and women uh, through the use of a non-unanimous jury. Uh, and a couple of months ago, we launched into our office's first cold case unit uh, that's looking at solving just a huge number of unsolved uh, crimes, which, you know, as you know, can lead to, uh, to new crimes. Uh, we're no longer prosecuting uh, marijuana offenses. Uh, we're treating crimes of poverty and addiction uh, like the mental health crisis that they are. Uh, and very recently this past month, we uh, have endeavored to deal with the cases of the forgotten men, also known as 10-6s. Uh, these are individuals who were prosecuted when Lyndon Baines Johnson was president, uh, before men ever walked on the moon. And it was a common practice that these folks pled guilty to a life sentence for a certain charge, but they would be eligible for parole and would be released in 10 years and six months. Thus the name, they became known as 10-6ers. And this was widely uh, acknowledged as a common practice by all judges, all lawyers, the governors we've had in that time uh, and, and, and the wardens of jails. However, the legislature uh, over time through this tough on crime uh, 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 policies, uh, they, they changed the law. And so they changed the law and made these folks, uh, uh, they, they basically moved the goalposts. Uh, and these folks are not releasing the 10 years and six months. And many of them uh, have been in jail since that time. And we began to get them, bring them home uh, in their 70s and 80s. Wow. Um, so I, I wanted to go back because you mentioned that uh, you're not doing any trials. So how are you guys handling the fact that people are ending up in custody pre-trial uh, if, if they're not being uh, tried through the system? So we have taken a, a very um, different uh, approach to pre-trial bail uh, from my predecessor. Uh, he was known to do bail increases and bond increases. He was typically shooting for super high bonds for low level offenses. Uh, and what we've done is we've allowed the judges uh, to really make a safety, public safety, dangerousness assessment uh, using a risk assessment tool and some other things. Uh, so we're not just keeping people in the jail for the sake of keeping people in jail pre-trial. Uh, most folks in the city of New Orleans come back to court. Uh, it may be a little different from other jurisdictions. Um, and I worked on the city council as council president before this, and we had a very serious commitment to decarcerating uh, our pre-trial pre detention facility. Uh, before Katrina, it had close to 8,000 people in it, uh, and, and, and we've gotten under 1,000 um, in, in, in recent years. And the entire system, uh, city, 
legislate legislators uh, within the city, city council, um, and the sheriff are all working towards keeping that number uh, at a reasonable size, not just locking people up because they can't afford to get out. Um, so one of the things I, I read about was this fake subpoena lawsuit um, where it seemed like uh, you guys got smacked down for actions by your predecessor. Um, so, so what's that all about and, uh, and uh, how are you guys moving forward on that? So um, uh, you're right, it, this was the actions of the DA that was here before me. Uh, and I actually would consider myself one of the smackers uh, because I, I was doing a lot of smacking as council president of this policy of issuing bogus subpoenas. Um, it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, we pushed him on it uh, and we got him to stop issuing them. Uh, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, no matter how you look at it, um, uh, a Washington-based organization, Civil Rights Corp, and the ACLU in October of 2017 on behalf of plaintiffs who were jailed or threatened with jail for not showing up to court proceedings uh, because of these fake subpoenas that no judge had signed. Um, there was a lawsuit that was issued uh, and, and, and it was properly uh, filed. Um, there was one instance in which uh, the previous administration arrested a domestic abuse survivor um, and that person spent days behind jail and literally spent more time in jail than the abuser who was convicted of the crime. So it absolutely needed to happen. Uh, these DA subpoenas were not authorized by a judge nor issued uh, by the clerk of court. Uh, and I committed during the campaign uh, and, and, and stuck it to that promise as DA to settle those lawsuits uh, and, 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 and make whole uh, the plaintiffs in that case. Uh, and we, even before I was sworn in, began having some in-depth conversations about ways that we might be able to settle those lawsuits. And, and so your office though is still under a receivership uh, for that, right? No, it's not, it's not a receivership. Uh, we, we have a police consent decree here. Uh, we have a sheriff jail consent decree. But uh, my office actually volunteered uh, and suggested that we get uh, a, pro a professor from Tulane University to work with the plaintiffs and my office to monitor everything that happens in this regard. I don't see it as a, as a receivership. Uh, it's not called a receivership. It is us voluntarily sharing all of our data because we will not issue these subpoenas. Uh, if, in fact, there is a concern uh, that a plaintiff has, they can bring it up to the monitor uh, and we will uh, immediately address it. But it is uh, it is a it is a partnership, not a receivership. Understood. Um, so talk about some of your work on uh, wrongful convictions and some of the releases of uh, the wrongly convicted. Sure. So this goes back to. Um, what I was saying about confronting the sins of the past and reckoning with the past. Um, in addition to the city of New Orleans being the most incarcerated uh, city in the world, uh, we've also had the most exonerations in the world, which means we have gotten it wrong. Innocent people have sat in jail. 
Uh, and that's a major disservice to the criminal legal system, but also to victims, because uh, a real perpetrator is left out uh, to reoffend. In March of 2021, we are glad and proud to have delivered justice to Mr. Jermaine Hudson. Uh, Mr. Hudson uh, spent 22 years of a 99-year sentence for a crime that never happened. Uh, earlier this year, uh, the purported victim in this case read about the work that we were doing in the news uh, and came forward and admitted that the crime that he told the police about never actually happened. He was never robbed. He just didn't want to share his, uh, his money from work with his parents. Um, and he had used it for drugs. And so he fabricated the story of a robbery. His father, doing what most fathers would do, called the police. Police came, brought a six-person lineup, and Jermaine Hudson's face was in that lineup. And he was picked for a crime that never, ever happened. And so we were glad to give him his freedom and clear his name uh, in March. Uh, another man, Utica Briley, was released from jail after serving nine years of a 60-year sentence for a crime that he didn't commit. Uh, from the arrest and a suggestive identification, they literally put him in the back of the car uh, and drove him uh, handcuffed and asked the victim uh, to identify him. Uh, the victim said uh, that it, the, everything about it was improper uh, and he felt uncomfortable about it. Uh, the criminal legal system completely mishandled that case. Um, and the worst part of both of the cases I just described is that there was evidence that supported innocence of each of these men, but it was disregarded or ignored by the previous administration. And, and I call the criminal legal system racist a lot of times by design, but it's also sexist by design and not enough people talk about that. In May of 2021, uh, a woman by the name of Betty Broughton uh, was, uh, was, was, was released after spending nearly 40 years uh, in jail uh, uh, of, of a life sentence without the opportunity to parole for second degree murder, uh, for shooting and killing a man who had threatened to kill her with a gun, who had attacked and beat her and raped her multiple times uh, in her own apartment over the course of one night. Uh, and she was just able to get that gun before she was raped again uh, and kill her attacker. And, and I dare say, I've heard people talk about stand your ground a lot, but if, if a man had, had done what Betty Broughton had done, he would have gotten the key to the city, not a life sentence. Um, and a, a rape kit wasn't done, an investigation wasn't done. Um, and so very, very proud that we have, 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 have brought a sense of justice to her family and, and the two of her three children that were still living when she uh, when we were able to release her after 38 years. And it's really interesting, you know, watching how far uh, New Orleans has come, uh, you know, just since Katrina. Can, can you kind of, um, you know, give us uh, the historical context? Uh, because, um, you know, I think, Katrina, uh, and we talked about this when you were running uh, uh, for office, uh, you know, Katrina really exposed a lot of problems. How far has New Orleans come in those 16 years now? Uh, there's been tremendous change. Uh, I, I think exponential change. Um, uh, Pre-Katrina, we had a pretrial detention facility 
with over 8,000 men and women in it. Now we've got one that is far under uh, 1,000. Uh, we had a, a police department uh, that had more violations than any other department in terms of federal consent decrees uh, before. Uh, and, and the city voluntarily, with the mayor's help, uh, the city council's help, when I was there, we ran to uh, reform uh, in the police department. Uh, and you look at a number of the uh, officer-involved shootings and, and injuries that are occurring and still occurring, in this country today, and you have not seen those things happening in the city of New Orleans. Um, we, we, our, our DA's office now, uh, when you look at the lion's share of young people that are system involved, most of those cases are handled in juvenile court. Uh, when you look at bail reform, the idea that a person has to languish in jail simply because they can't put a couple hundred dollars together to get out. Uh, we've created space and time and an opportunity for judges to set reasonable bail. Uh, we, we are now focusing on violent offenses, murder, rape, armed robbery, uh, serial uh, gang violence, uh, and the like. And we're treating crimes of poverty like crimes of poverty, like the, 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 the crisis situations that they are. Um, uh, a narcotics addiction, um, mental health crises, all of these things we're trying to divert from the criminal legal system so folks aren't, 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 aren't doubly victimized by a system uh, that has caused true harm. Uh, we're looking back at confronting injustices in the past, whether or not retroactivity is required or not. Uh, we're making sure that Promises that were made, like the promises made to the 10-6ers, are being followed up on. So I think it's safe to say that a place uh, uh, where, where racism and sexism found very fertile soil, a place where uh, injustice became the norm, uh, uh, the most incarcerated place on the planet, uh, is actually ground zero now for criminal justice reform. And we're not we're not uh, inching our way through it. Uh, we're doing it in a very robust and very public way. Uh, so the people of the city, the people of this country can frankly see there is a better way uh, uh, to engage in accountability as relates to criminal justice in this country. Are you seeing any pushback against some of your changes? Absolutely. You know, there are always going to be the, the Anzingers of the world, the war on, the folks who, who, who love the war on drugs because they appreciated the war on a certain demographic of people, right? So there's always gonna be fear mongering, people playing with data and numbers. Um, and, and they're saying that, they're saying things like criminal justice reform makes us less safe. Uh, although most of the men and women that we've released from jail who've come home are closer to 70 years old in age and have gone through criminal menopause, uh, for, for lack of a better word. Um, it is important that we share our data and that's what we've been trying to do so people can study what's working and what's not working uh, so that we can push back on that fear mongering. It's gonna always exist, right? Uh, we expected it, but we're not gonna let it, let it slow us down.
what kinds of uh, what kinds of pushback are you seeing though? I'll give you an example. One um, one instance, there's a, an organization called the Metropolitan Crime Commission, uh, and they're a self-titled watchdog group um, uh, that has existed in this city for a very long time. Uh, there was, um, and, and, and they, 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 they love to suggest, and they have even used phrases that describe criminal justice reform uh, as dangerous to public safety, right? Uh, and very recently there was uh, an, an individual who was released on a reduced bond who was pending trial. Um, and while out on bond, he committed a homicide. This watchdog group's leader uh, went on the news and said, oh, this DA's office uh, uh, allowed this person to make a bond with, because he did not object uh, to this bond decrease. And, 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 and he has blood on his hands, for lack of a better word, right? He completely ignored the fact that there is a transcript which clearly showed my assistant district attorney strenuously and vigorously objecting to a reduction in bond in this particular individual's case because there had been no change in circumstance since an earlier judge had set that bond. So the, 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 the willingness to lie publicly and loudly uh, is, is ever present to serve one particular narrative. So that's just one example of, of the type of pushback uh, that we've seen. The exciting thing I'll tell you though, is people are paying more attention to what DA's offices are doing, to what police departments are doing, uh, and they're not as, as, as susceptible uh, to that type of fear mind because they're paying attention to all of the things. Um, so that, that part makes me very hopeful when we do get pushback. And is New Orleans seeing the same kind of spike in murder rate that's happening across the country? We are. That is, uh, that is a national trend. Uh, and I think if we look back historically, uh, and sometimes it's seasonal uh, in the summers, uh, but th th there, there are certain patterns that exist. Uh, there are certain issues and pressure points that exist in the country that, that, that increase uh, the rates of violent crime. Um, one that is in all of our faces is the fact that we have just gone through a global pandemic in which people have been isolated uh, from human beings uh, for over a year. Uh, young people have been trying to learn uh, from behind a, a computer screen, have not been able to engage with each other. And we talk about the physical implications of a person's lungs with regards to COVID, but there's very little discussion about the emotional and mental well-being of human beings coming through close to a year and a half of an unprecedented uh, uh, amount of isolation caused by this global pandemic and the joblessness uh, and lack of income uh, that it has caused, which is also attributing to uh, an, an increase in violent crime. So we're seeing what Boston's seeing, we're seeing what Chicago is seeing, and we have to all work together, I believe nationally, with the help of the federal stimulus money that's coming to cities, to put in a bit more of a safety net uh, to keep people out of the criminal legal system so that they make better choices. What are you doing about things like the death penalty? 
You know, uh, if, if there's one thing I could say uh, on a positive note about uh, the, the DA that was in this chair before me, he did not seek the death penalty in 10 years. Um, in the past 10 years, the last 10 years of his uh, 12 years as DA. Uh, it speaks volumes to what the people of the city of New Orleans believe in and don't believe in. Uh, there, there, there does come a time when things in our country become obsolete. Um, and what are you doing differently in terms of police accountability? Well, you know, one of the things we're doing is uh, we're meeting uh, with the police department on a, on a very regular basis about, uh, uh, about issues that come up small and large, right? So that we're not waiting uh, to deal with things uh, responsibly, but we're trying to be proactive uh, so that un so officers understand the value and beauty uh, of, of, of police accountability the value and beauty of body-worn uh, camera footage, uh, how it can be uh, helpful to officers and how it can be helpful to citizens. Uh, my team and I are confecting and crafting uh, a policy uh, that will clearly articulate for the public and clearly articulate for law enforcement what is expected when there is an officer-involved uh, injury or officer-involved fatality involving a citizen. Uh, and we're not just including uh, the police department, but we're including the sheriff's department. So we have a number of law enforcement agencies uh, in our jurisdiction, levy board, um, um, uh, in addition to some of the private security neighborhood details as well, because they still uh, are working under color of law as well. Um, and then, you know, kind of uh, dovetailing on that a little bit, um, you know, one of the big issues that um, I think everywhere um, has with the criminal legal system is racial inequities, you know, and, and this is hard. Like I was talking to some of the other DAs that are progressive reformers across the country and, and they're not seeing a huge change in like their jail composition. Um, you know, I talked to Chase the Bodine in, in San Francisco, and they have, you know, uh, a black population in San Francisco of only 6%, but more than half their jail is black. Um, I said, well, what are you doing about it? Because it doesn't look like the, the numbers are going down. And, and he, you know, admitted that uh, it, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, how... What can a DA do uh, to, to start changing that inequity? Number one, I think you've got to measure everything, right? Uh, if you're not measuring it, then you don't know uh, what sort of results you're getting. And so we have, we're working with uh, PPI, uh, Prosecutor's Performance Index, to help us measure uh, a, a number of these things so we know the demographics of people that are coming through. Obviously, uh, we know there is an overrepresentation of blacks and, 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 and minorities in the system. Um, I think DAs uh, across the country have an obligation to be honest about that. Uh, we have to be honest about the fact 
that in the past 300 years, at least in my city's history, 300 years old, uh, the, the criminal legal system has been racist and sexist by design because blacks and women did not play a role in designing the system and how it will work. And so that means the office has to be uh, proactively committed to rooting out racial inequity in the criminal legal system and crafting a system that serves all people. Um, it, it is no secret that uh, police and prosecutors have, have, have protected and served one demographic and policed and prosecuted another. That is why we launched the Civil Rights Division. We certainly going forward uh, are looking at who is prosecuted, the what and the why, and making sure that there's no racial, uh, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic undertones or underlying any pretext of any arrest. But what about 1970? What about 1980? What about people who are still sitting in jail because of those pretextual searches or because of that level of profiling? So it is incumbent upon us to, ad to address those sins of the past um, because racism deserves no place in the criminal legal system uh, 2021 going forward or going back uh, to 1970 as VA, we're putting systems in place to root that out whenever we see it. Uh, and, and I guess to answer the question simply, look for it. Because if you don't look for it, um, you know, you're not, it, it's, e it, it, it's easy to move on and talk about something else. Well, when I often, you know, raise the issue of racial inequities, the response I get from more conservative audiences is, well, you know, the racial inequities just reflect who's committing the crimes. So how do you counter that, um, that narrative? So I'll tell you, I went to Tulane University. Uh, I, was, I was a pretty straight-laced kid, uh, played football in undergrad, played football in college. So I was drug tested in high school and in college, right? I, I never saw drugs of any kind until I was in college, right? And it wasn't just weed, it was everything from weed, cocaine, heroin, it's around, it's in dormitories. Um, and, and I can tell you that uh, in the city of New Orleans and I was in school in 1990, we would, you would regularly see raids on housing projects in the city of New Orleans. And they would say, well, we, we, we did a raid at the Magnolia Housing Project because it's an area uh, where there's a lot of drug activity, right? Where there's a lot of drug activity on college campuses, always has been, but there's never been a raid on a college campus. So this, this, this libertarian or conservative or right-wing pushback saying that, that darkness or blackness is somehow a bit more criminal, it is a bit more criminal because Anzinger and, and Richard Nixon uh, came up with the second phase of criminalizing blackness, making it other, so they could marginalize people that were not gonna vote for them. And it has never stopped, it's only had different iterations. So uh, 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 folks commit crimes at the same rates, regardless of race, uh, regardless of sex. Um, you know, it's, it's just a matter of where we're looking. How does a, a prosecutor deal with, you know, issues like poverty, which go outside of your immediate jurisdiction, obviously, but 
also bleed into, you know, the issues that you deal with every single day? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, there's a very real intersection uh, uh, of, of, of poverty uh, and criminality. Uh, a lot of people find themselves in tough situations and then make poor choices. A lot of young people find themselves making poor choices because their parents are working two and three jobs. Um, and so poverty is a huge component. And so we're trying to have, uh, and we're trying to endeavor to have trauma-informed screening. So when we screen a case, we look at everything, everything that uh, was involved in that maybe 30 seconds or three minutes of a bad decision. Uh, and, 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 we, and we try to figure out if it was a crime of poverty uh, or, or, or a crime of addiction that was rooted in poverty or mental health issue. Uh, and so we're trying to screen cases based upon that, but we also are partnering with and working with the mayor and the city council to try to really, once we issue spot uh, these areas in which people find themselves uh, in a cycle of poverty or a cycle of criminality, areas in which we can invest in people or in neighborhoods to get better outcomes for people. Um, it, it, there's there's a certainly limited bandwidth for a prosecutor. Uh, we get called in after the police are called, after 911 is called. Um, but we certainly have been able to flag issues about why things are happening. And that's when we tag off and try to work with the mayor, our Congressman Troy Carter and others to invest in getting better outcomes out of people as opposed to trying to repair broken men and women. So as we wrap up here, um, you know, what are you kind of most excited about uh, that your office is going to be doing maybe in the next six months? So we, um, because of the, the shutdown, uh, it gave us uh, a unique opportunity to build internally, go after some grant funding to make the civil rights division more robust. Uh, in, 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 in November, we're, we're, we're slated to begin jury trials. Uh, and so I am most excited about the yin and yang of being able to be in court, trying cases, and delivering justice for people uh, who have had things happen to them uh, in recent history. And I'm also excited that that is not going to outpace the work that we're doing to confront the sins of the past about injustices that have occurred. So I'm really excited to see both of, of those commitments to public safety happening at the same time. And um, also, I guess I didn't ask you this. I mean, was there a lot of turnover in your department when you came on board or, or, or what does your department look like? So uh, we, we, a lot of folks say, well, when you come in, fire everybody because you, you can't trust who's there. Uh, and we looked at other offices around the country and other offices around the state to see how that process went. Uh, and, and we did not fire everyone. Uh, what I did was, uh, along with a select group of individuals working with me, some of them, one was a college president, uh, Tanya Tetlow, president of Loyola, uh, and, and other folks from my team, we re-interviewed every single person uh, to figure out why they wanted to work with me, why they worked under the last administration, and did a thorough vetting. Uh, some people were let go because they were committed to principles uh, that I believe were antithetical to public safety and antithetical to justice. Um, we kept a lot of people on. 
I think there is perpetual turnover. This job is hard. Uh, we deal with uh, the worst moments of, 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 of individuals in the city's lives uh, and it takes its toll on people. And so you can only do it for so long. So we've just tried to put a system in place that, that uh, protects the, 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 the bandwidth and shelf life of our team members. Uh, and we're constantly recruiting and hiring people who have a passion to serve the public uh, in this capacity. Um, and do you feel like you now have a department that's on board with what you're trying to do? I do. I, I believe that we do, and I'm constantly looking for more. All right, uh, closing thoughts? Uh, closing thoughts, I, I, I will tell you that um, uh, podcasts like yours, uh, and, and news agencies that are still committed to telling complete and thorough stories about what's happening in different parts of the country. I can't thank you enough and others. Um, uh, journalism is not what it used to be. Uh, people look for a, a, a sensational soundbite and they think they've got the whole story based upon that. So I just wanna thank you for, um, for really digging deep into the details of how and why things are happening. Well, I wanna thank you for taking time out uh, from your very busy schedule to uh, share some thoughts with us today. Thank you. That was Jason Williams. He is the district attorney in New Orleans and uh, he shared some very interesting uh, changes that are happening in, in that community. Um, and it's always interesting uh, going back and uh, talking with people like Jason because um, they have a very different perspective than I think a lot of other uh, district attorneys have across the country. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.